Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA, and I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life, talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers, and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator USA on the iTunes Store. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the new Spectator USA website. I'm joined today by John Rick MacArthur, who is publisher of Harper's Magazine in New York. And we're going to be talking about the resignation slash firing of Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books. So, Rick, just to, to start with, I'll just sort of lay out how I think the story works, and you can correct me if I'm getting it wrong. In the forthcoming edition of the New York Review of Books, Ian Bruma published a piece by Gian Gomeshi, who is a kind of Canadian celebrity, uh, sort of Harvey Weinstein before Harvey Weinstein, uh, if you like. He was accused of um, terrible sex, sexual misdemeanors, was not convicted. And he wrote a piece about what it's like to be seen as a monster in the media, and and it was a sort of I thought rather self-serving, whiny piece, but it, nonetheless quite an interesting read. Anyway, it caused a huge uproar. It has already caused, caused a huge uproar, and it has already forced Ian Baruma to, to resign. Is that a fair summation of what's happened? Yes, there's been a, a Twitter storm, a kind of a trial by Twitter, which is extra, what we, I, I refer to as extrajudicial justice, where Baruma has been ejected from his job as editor of New York Review because a mob decided that he's not fit to edit the New York Re- Review because he published a piece by one of these awful, supposed allegedly awful male uh, predators. Now, mm. we published at Harper's Magazine, we're always first, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but we're ahead of them with a piece by John Hockenberry who was another a, a, a national public radio uh, personality and journalist in the United States, who is similarly accused of horrible predatory practices, except that Hockenberry is in a wheelchair. He's paraplegic. So I have been trying to remind people that this is a good example of proportion and disproportionate response to bad behavior, which both mm. men admit to, that the lumping together of Harvey Weinstein with John Gomeshi or John Hockenberry is fundamentally crooked thinking and fundamentally unfair. But uh, You could also say it's unfair of Harvey Weinstein because he hasn't been tried yet. Yeah, he hasn't been tried. He's innocent until proven guilty. However, there is a mob rule mentality now which breaks down into different tendencies, uh, let me say. One day I think it's Soviet... In fact, I accused the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation interviewer who interviewed me the other day about this of having a Soviet tone. Uh, in other words, uh, they are demanding that these men not only confess to their crimes and disappear, but they have to recant in a kind of a public, perfect way, the way uh, Soviet uh, dissidents or Soviet uh, somebody who wasn't uh, hewing to the party line, uh, were forced to publicly humiliate themselves in front of the Central Committee. 
and I'm quite serious about this analogy because there's a ruthlessness and a uh, humorlessness and a rigidity to the, to the accusers, which is um, fundamentally un-American and anti-democratic. Now, it's also possible to make a comparison with McCarthyism because uh, nobody's accusing Ian Baruma of being a sexual predator. They're only attacking him for associating with an alleged sexual pr- predator. Remember, again, yes. he was a, he was a, acquitted of all the charges. So being a, so a predator he, sympathizer, right? He's, like he's, a, he's a fellow traveler. He's, yeah. he's both a fellow traveler and a, a communist sympathizer. So, a, I mean, a it, under it, the bed. It, 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 it is extraordinary. So there's a McCarthyite element to it. There's a Soviet element to it. And there's also just a kind of mob rule, mass hysteria side. There's another, and, and there's another interesting aspect which I'd like to ask you about, which is the targeting of people above the editor or who are in positions of power to kind of influence whether the editor stays or goes. I mean, I think in this instance, it seems there was pressure was put through the advertisers, the university presses, who give a lot of money to the New York Review of Books. Yes, And it was, became very clear that if, if he was to stay, then a lot of money would have been withheld, and so it, his position became untenable. Yes. And we see this a bit in Britain, where when you publish something, they don't go to the editor, they will go to the people above the editor and say, is, it accept, is this acceptable? And it's a sort of, it's almost, a, I mean... Well, I suppose it's an authoritarian culture in which people are informing on the highest, informing on you on the highest possible authority. Yeah, correct. And and what's bizarre for me and kind of destabilizing is that I used to have to uh, deal with this from major multinational corporations. I remember Pfizer Pharmaceutical canceled, to my horror, a hundred thousand dollar advertising schedule because we ran a piece criticizing their sleazy marketing of antidepressants and uh, the CEO was outraged outraged and they pulled the advertising well that's the way it used to go but it, but at least you were dealing with a something of, of of i think greater substance i what's happening here is the people who you associate with freedom of expression freedom to publish freedom to write freedom to think differently the university presses apparently according to baruma put pressure on New York Review, and New York Review caved. If New York Review caved in because of pressure from university presses, it not only puts the university presses in a very bad light, but it also puts New York Review and its owner in a very bad light. It's, 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 it, would be, it is disgraceful if that's what happened, really disgraceful, and we're all weaker for it. And I suppose, well, Harper's is is blessed, I suppose, as having you the publisher because you, you know you you're the person you're the the buck stops with you, right? Right, and I I'm not going to put up with this. I, I've I've been through much worse than this. And we published the an excerpt from the Satanic Verses. We we published the Danish satirical uh, caricatures of Muhammad. We we've done a lot of things that put us at risk, I think, physically, and so. I'm a little bit alarmed to see my colleagues caving in so quickly to a Twitter mob, essentially, a, a kind of amorphous, decontextualized Twitter mob of people who are barely, in many cases, barely coherent. What, and so, what, what it, do you think? I, but it, it's not a joke. I don't mean to, to be flippant about this because it is a, a serious threat to freedom of, freedom of expression and the ability to publish and write independently. And the Baruma resignation or firing, whatever it was, is a catastrophe for American yeah. uh, 
democracy and freedom, I think. And what do you think it is about these Twitter mobs, as you call them, that uh, are, are so much more effective at, at getting things shut down or getting people fired? Well, uh, what, is, what is it that makes them more effective than, you know, let's say corporations trying to stick up for their interests or, or whatever? Well, I guess because it's so personal. If you read some of these things, and I think they take a page from Donald Trump, they've learned the techniques of Internet Twitter savagery to some extent from Trump. He sets the example for the left as well as for the right. And so if you're an average uh, writer and you're worried about your income, your future, whatever, or you're a, a publisher of modest means, uh, you look at these personal attacks and the viciousness of them and you say to yourself, oh, my God, I'm being, my whole raison d'etre is being called into question. It's not just an, an amorphous corporation taking money away from me. It's my whole... A sense of myself being attacked and if everybody around you is also screaming at you which I, I assume they were doing at New York Review there's a some people on the staff were obviously unhappy with the piece and were complaining about it it becomes emotionally very difficult to hang in there it's not it's not it's harder to make it a matter of principle and uh, uh, some people just aren't up for it they say well it's not worth it and I I, I give up there's also this strange thing that seems to be going on of that the it's it's often the most you know let's call it lefty left liberal publications that get the most anger and because i suppose there's a sense of betrayal among young progressives that that these publications are are meddling in this stuff i mean so we have the atlantic had their thing with kevin williamson and there was an outrage about him and he was then fired then you had the new yorker recently with Steve Bannon, who was invited to speak at something and then was disinvited because of complaints. You've had experience of it at Harper's as well. There's this, I mean, on the American left, there's this sort of purging thing going on, isn't there? Yeah, although I don't consider The New Yorker and The Atlantic to be uh, left-wing magazines. I, can, I consider them to be tools of the, of the internet mob. And of the, uh, yeah, to some extent, I, the, 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 is, the mainstream Democratic that is, Party. That is wonderfully <laughs> unique. <position. laughs> yeah. I'm not at all. <laughs> and, and, and you saw in the case of The New Yorker where they invited, David Remnick invited Bannon to speak and then, and then canceled the invitation because people, the Twitter, Twitter sphere went crazy and his staff went crazy on him. It's not left or right. It's just social. His social status was threatened. And uh, yes. he was financially threatened because they also said we won't participate or we won't uh, buy tickets to the New Yorker Festival, which I, I gather they make a lot of money on. But Remnick has always been, as a friend of mine puts it, on the cutting edge of consensus. So I'm not surprised by his <laughs> behavior. I, I, I am more concerned about the general unwillingness to confront uh, the mob or to defend the idea of dissent. I mean, my God, we, we published a piece a couple of years ago by a convicted murderer uh, reflecting on what it's like to spend his umpteenth year in, in uh, maximum security jail yes. uh, for a crime yeah. he committed 25 years ago. Nobody said, how dare you publish a piece by a convicted murderer? Yes. <laughs> but yes. everybody questions our decision to piece, uh, publish a piece by John Hockenberry, who was a very very respected journalist and uh, and as I point out overcame a, a terrible disability 
to do what he did in life. I mean, he deserves a little bit more of a break than he's getting. I just, I just, I'm astonished. And the second thing I would say to my fellow publishers is everybody in publishing who's been in publishing knows that if you give in on libel, on intimidation, on boycott threats, it will encourage other people, other mobs, to do the same thing to you. Uh, so I don't understand the I don't understand the strategy. If Ray Hatterman, the owner of the New York Review, thinks that he's going to appease the mob uh, by getting rid of Baruma, uh, he's he's sadly mistaken. It's only going to weaken the New York Review of Books, and it's only going to uh, make it more difficult for the for the magazine to survive in very difficult times, difficult economic times. But it does seem to be something particular about Toby Young on our USA website yesterday called it you know sexual McCarthyism. It, it's something about sexual stuff that seems to be so powerful yes. at the moment. I mean, yes. you know, The Guardian published Osama bin Laden when he was alive, and you know, I think they'd probably do the same now, Yes, but they wouldn't publish Harvey Weinstein. Absolutely. And I don't know about The Guardian. I, I, I sometimes wonder if The Guardian isn't secretly an American publication, but there is something in this country which is puritanical beyond anything you see in, in, other, in other Western countries. And you have to look back at the history of the country. I mean, think about prohibition. We prohibited the sale of alcohol for, what, 14 years? It's, it was insane, insane. Mm. The country literally tried to purge itself of alcohol, uh, of spirits. Uh, so this country has been through other crazy attempts at self-purification before. We may be going through some new form of prohibition or some, something related to it. I've, I've got to think about it more. But I do think there's something uniquely American uh, going back to the, the Plymouth Colony and uh, Governor Winthrop and his idea of the city on the hill and so on, shining a beacon of, of goodness and freedom to the rest of the world, or <laughs> not freedom, but of goodness to yes. the rest of the world that stays with us and we go through this these periods of McCarthy the McCarthy area was another one where we had to purge ourselves of any communist or left-wing leanings because of the new deal maybe we have to purge ourselves of sexual impulses because of the liberalization of sex in the 60s and 70s so and again i i having published many many distinguished fem- feminist writers I'm I'm astonished, astonished by what's going on. Really astonished. Well, actually, but I mean, it has to be. It has to be resisted. I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about your experience. I'm, I quite understand if I'm being indelicate, but I I I mean, because something that interests me is that quite often it seems to be institutional. So the publication experience, you know, members of staff saying, "Oh, actually, I don't think this is acceptable," and there becomes this sort of the institution turns on itself in a way. Is that something that happens? In, in all of these instances? Well, it, it, it varies from, from culture to culture. Obviously, the New Yorker, the staff or maybe management took over and told Remnick, get rid of Bannon, and, and, and uh, uh, Remnick complied. But there is, I suppose you could say, if you want to go deeper into it, there is a, a new hatred of hierarchy, which is very much a part of the Internet culture. The Internet... Twitter, Facebook, all these things are supposed to democratize the media and eliminate old-fashioned hierarchy where uh, some, somebody at the top, the editor in my case is a woman, but she is white, 
I do have a white woman as editor of Harper's Magazine dictating taste and standards. This is something people, the younger generation, seems to object to tremendously. They, They despise the idea that somebody older or more experienced or maybe even smarter would know better than they. Uh, so yeah. there's a, there is an attempt, there is an attempt to uh, level the playing field, so to speak, and democratize things. And I, and I, I have heard that Baruma, who's written for Harper's, by the way, over the years, he's been a regular contributor to Harper's Magazine, was trying to democratize New York Review somewhat. In other words, he was more willing to listen to the staff than Robert Silvers, the legendary founder of the magazine, who really ran it the way he he saw fit and did everything. He was kind of the dictator. So Baruma tries to democratize it or open it up in the spirit of the times. And this is the price he pays for it to some extent. Yeah, that's like de Tocqueville, isn't it? You give people a little bit and they destroy you. <laughs> well, de Tocqueville is he? I, I've read de Tocqueville thoroughly in French and in English to make sure that he didn't, the uh, they didn't mistranslate him. And the the remarkable thing Tocqueville uh, noticed about America was yes, you have the freedom to do and say pretty much anything you want, but if you do it, you are very quickly sent to the margins of society, which is where you will spend the rest of your days, and. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up because because Gomeshi and 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 uh, although he's Canadian, yeah. but uh, a lot of the Me Too uh, predators, including my writer Hockenberry, have been banished to the margins of society. Nobody's saying they should go to jail, but they're saying they really shouldn't be able to function or rehabilitate themselves or. Uh, work in in the anything remotely connected to the jobs they used to hold. Yes, there's also a sort of mental health argument that comes in that it's sort of damaging. It could be damaging for people to read that or to be exposed to their, yeah. their having a voice. I, I thought the difference between <laughs> between the United States and North Korea was presumably it's more fun to live in the United States than in North Korea because. We have we were allowed to have arguments and mix it up and disagree and hate each other and so on, but nobody gets hurt in North Korea. Of course, you get hurt if you try to do that sort of thing. So, I I, I am very very I'm very very shocked very shocked. It's it I'm wait, also, I'm, and I'm waiting. Uh, by the way, there's we have to. I don't want to leave out the details. It's not I just, think the police not, are coming to get you, Rick. Sorry, yeah, I'm not, I'm not I'm not forgetting. You can hear it in the background. I'm not forgetting. Don't forget that New York Review has now posted a kind of explanatory, apologetic introduction uh, to the Gomeshi piece so that you're not injured by it when you read it. You're not taken by surprise. And The Nation, uh, left-wing weekly of, uh, of long standing, recently uh, published an apology for, for um, uh, publishing, uh, published an apology for publishing a poem which they uh, said wasn't sufficiently respectful or sympathetic to minorities, I think, something like that. It's just, a, it's just crazy, just absolutely mad what's going on. It's interesting what you said about the resistance to authority within these institutions, but then there's also, paradoxically, there is a sort of desperation for some adult to come along and stop these people from being able to talk. You know, there's a kind of, it's both democratic and authoritarian. Yes, and um, the the odd thing is, I haven't yet encountered a Me Too authority figure 
In other words, somebody who speaks for the movement. Uh, right I, there are a lot Paris. of people. There, there may be, there may be some, but of course, there are a lot of women who ridicule this. I mean, uh, my office, I'm sure, is divided in uh, in its opinion about the piece, but we're always divided in what we we publish. I don't agree with everything we publish. I I, I sometimes I, I don't advertise it, but I've disliked uh, pieces we published and thought they shouldn't have been published. But it would be a very dull magazine if everybody agreed on everything that was published. It's or if I liked everything that was published. It, it's just so stultifyingly dull. But in terms of finding an authority figure, yes, I'm the authority figure in this case, and I suppose uh, that's why some of the hate is uh, was directed at me on Twitter. I'm not on social media, so I don't pay attention to it. But there was a lot of hate Twitter aimed at me a couple of, a couple of days ago after my uh, Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation interview. Uh, but I'm very happy. I stand by the interview, and I hope people uh, will listen to it online as well as listen to this online. And i also say something which I, I, I've said to some of my... Because I am very much on the left. In other words, I'm on the traditional left. I favor a big welfare state. I favor uh, uh, national health insurance. I, I favor a smaller military budget, things like that. And I say to my left friends... The, the place to find support now, more and more, is on the right. In other words, you need to make common cause, even if you disagree profoundly with right-wing dogma or right-wing ideology. There is a, 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 an area now to make common cause with the right. They flinch. They don't want to hear it. Yes, uh, yes. I write for The Spectator, as you know. I mean, I keep telling people, you don't have to sign a loyalty oath to read or write for Harper's Magazine. Same goes for The Spectator. It's anathema to me. And yeah. you say this to people, and they just become more hysterical. And, and, and again, my fellow liberal, my fellow lefty liberals, don't want to hear that either. They, oh, no, I don't want to be associated with anything right-wing. I don't want to go on Fox News. Uh, I've been on Fox News many times, and I you know, do the best I can. Well, and that's, I, and, that's nothing. I think you mentioned earlier about how it's a status I mean, with Remnick, perhaps that was that was the case, or with the New Yorker, certainly that's the case. It's a, it's almost a social acceptability thing. Yes. You, you, yes. you, you, you divine your politics by what will be acceptable at the parties that you want to go to. Absolutely. And if, if that's the kind of party you want to go to, those sort of social circles you want to uh, be in, it sounds like you're going to live a very dull life. But let's not, let's not again, under underplay the economic pressure. Remnick caved in because real money was, in part because real money was at stake, and part because his social uh, status was threatened. And I think the New York Review caved in uh, for a a combination of reasons, economic pressure and probably economic pressure, and dissent within the the magazine, and also uh, maybe a a threat to the social status of the owner. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can't, I've tried to speak to him. I've called him a couple of times. And he doesn't return my phone calls. I tried to buck him up, actually. I wanted to buck him up and, and tell him, for God's sake, don't give in to these people. But yes. he hasn't returned my calls, Ray Hederman. Well, I mean, what do you think is going to happen next, then? Is this just going to get worse and worse and worse until sort of all opinion journalism on a lot of interesting subjects is pretty much unreadable? Well, or do you think there's, there's a resistance within it, a resistance emerging? 
That's a very good question because I flattered myself when we published the Katie Royfe piece back in February, which started this, uh, set off an uproar of greater proportion than what we're going through right now with Hockenberry. Can you just, just in case some of our listeners don't know, can you just give us a quick summary of the Katie Royfe? Yes, Katie Royfe, uh, so a woman on our staff said, you know, we really ought to get something in the magazine that's contrarian, that challenges the orthodoxy of Me Too. Yes, we all want to see uh, sexual harassment uh, opposed and so on and so forth. In fact, Harper's, we, we fired a guy years ago, nine years ago, I think, uh, for, um, for sexual harassment. And, you know, it's just we, we try to run the office uh, for adults, and if somebody behaves childishly, they're gone, they're out. But Royfi, the, the, somebody on our staff, a woman again, wanted to publish something contrarian. So we cast around uh, and found uh, that some women were interested but were afraid to write this. And Katie, having been through a, 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 her own Calvary 20 years earlier for a, page, a, a, a book she wrote about rape and campus sex, uh, she was up for it. She did the piece. And instantly it was leaked because our fact checker called uh, someone named Moira Donegan to find out if she was the author of the so-called shitty media men's list, which was the begin uh, just a vile document that lumped together again uh, people who were accused or even had admitted to physical sexual assault and people who, in, one, in the case of one guy I know, was accused of leering at women, L-E-E-R-I-N-G, just insane. And so the Twitter sphere went mad and they uh, called for boycotts against us and said people should withdraw their, their writing, advertisers should boycott us, before the piece had even been edited and printed. So we had to withstand that storm. But once it came out, Royfi got on national television. She got a lot of publicity. The piece was widely read, widely discussed. Many people disliked it. Some people liked it. I thought it was going to turn the tide, that it was going to reinforce the people who know that what's going on is not good for American society or democracy. But it does seem to be getting worse. I was flattering myself. And I, and I suspect it may get even worse uh, because of Baruma, because again, once you give in to the bullies, they'll come back and bully you again, and they'll demand more. They'll extract. They'll try to extract more. Rick, I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much for talking to us, and um, all the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer and we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. 